So that's 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting from verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, if in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor to the churches of God. Ed, thanks for reading so much. Welcome, everybody. It's nice to see you all this morning. Do keep 1 Corinthians 11 open for, for in front of you while we go through this morning. I'm going to start by praying. The unfolding of your word gives light. Gracious Father, help us this morning hear what you have to say to us. Shine light onto our darkened hearts, we pray. And we pray, Father, that you would help us hear everything you have to say to us. For your glory. Amen. Let's just start by asking a question. Why is this picture of the church so good? Why is it so good? Head and body. This image actually runs, uh, starts this new section in 1 Corinthians and it runs right through until the end of chapter 14, for head and body. And it's all about the order within the gathered church, order within the gathered church. So today's theology of verse three particularly underpins this whole section and is crucial to us living as a distinctive gathering of Christians. And in a world that will think we are foolish, remember chapter one, uh, we need to know that we have the, well, watching angels. Verse 10, check the footnote. Uh, The angels are there, witnessing, observing, reporting, and marveling at how we behave So the angels will say, Lord, what a marvelous design for your people. We have an audience. As we gather here this morning, an audience. And what an audience it is. We can get ourselves tied up in knots in this passage, I'm sure you can imagine, as you heard the reading read. And we can forget that this is an image of Christ's body. And it's God's perfect, good design for his people. It's almost like an Eden 
restored picture? Did you spot all the Genesis references? The way it was always supposed to be. And the angels are watching, and we can be that people here today. That is really exciting. So how we behave really, really matters. Given that, we have a very real potential problem here this morning. I think I don't see anybody here wearing a head covering this morning. Is that, verse 6, a disgrace? Is that a disgrace? Are we all in direct contradiction to this passage? Have we shattered the beautiful image of God's body? Should we all be at the 10 a.m. wearing head coverings next week? Well, we'll have to wait and see. Although worth noting up front, uh, exactly what the head covering was is still a mystery to us. Uh, Many still debate it for far too many pages of most books. Veils, a hairstyle, maybe a piece of cloth. Who knows? Uh, Frankly, I want to say it doesn't actually change our application one bit. Uh, Hopefully you'll see why by the end. So, gender. It's a hot topic. Uh, Many in 21st century London are very confused about it. And it goes without saying, uh, we all have a horse in the race. Uh, We all have a biological sex and we all relate to others all the time. So today may well end up being close to the bone for lots of us here. Um, If I offend you, please forgive me. Um, I'm only trying to say what Paul and, by extension, God is saying. If I get the text wrong, uh, please come and correct me. Uh, If you have a problem with the text itself, well, well, then your issue is slightly less with me and slightly more with God himself. But what we need to all remember is this. God made us, And he knows what is best for us. And there could well be some here, some of us here, may well struggle with gender dysphoria. If that is you, please can I beg you to talk to somebody here about that. There is lots more that can be said than I can say in this one talk about that. We tend to forget, uh, or maybe we just didn't know, Um, But there was a huge revolution about 2,000 years ago. Jewish society was simple. Uh, Men were superior. Men thanked God daily for not being women. Uh, No rabbi would ever even speak directly to a single woman. Uh, Women could come to synagogue, uh, but would be sat apart from the men and had to remain silent throughout Then Jesus came, and revolution. Sure, Jesus only chose men for his disciples, granted, but he accepted women into his following, always spoke to them with utmost dignity and respect, and clearly was happy to speak to them like no other rabbi would ever dream to. The early church and Paul clearly prized women, And it's self-evident from the Gospels that women are repeatedly the ones who understand Jesus better than anybody else and are then held up as the model examples for us of discipleship. 
So the revolution had happened, and it happened fast. Men and women were equal suddenly. But uh, given the relatively brief appearance of Jesus, it's unsurprising that church life ran into some confusions. Uh, No time to spell out every single detail of church practice, although isn't that actually a brilliant thing from the Lord to have done, so that there isn't just one cultural expression of church? And so we find ourselves in Corinth. Corinth, as we know, was the metropolis, uh, full of knowledge, wisdom, and pride. Uh, Knowledge puffs up, chapter 8, verse 1, remember? Uh, They were the cutting edge, uh, breaking barriers. No doubt there would have been great pride of their views of gender. They were fiercely independent. Uh, We've seen that throughout. Uh, And notice even, end of verse 16, Paul had to encourage them to watch the other churches, Fiercely independent, the proud city. Our way is best, they would say. Isn't it funny how some things never change? And yet Paul starts by commending them. Did you see that? How unusual. Verse 2, now I commend you. This is the first and only commendation in the book of 1 Corinthians. It only took 11 chapters to get there, and it's like a breath of fresh air, isn't it? They are still persevering with Paul's ways in things. Women, fully incorporated and active in the life of the church, and wearing the hats as they did back then. Brilliant, says Paul. Excellent. Just what Paul would have wanted. Well done. Commendation. See, notice how Paul doesn't say to any of the women here, stop talking. Stop talking. He doesn't say that anywhere. And now we must remember that, uh, both today and when we get to chapter 14 in a few weeks' time. Women praying and prophesying in our gathering is great. Brilliant. So then, the issue is plain. The Corinthians... They did the right thing. They did the right thing, but they didn't know why they did what they did. They didn't know why they did it. Q verse 3. But I want you to understand their practice is right. See, some churches, sometimes church is less about what you do and more about why you do it. Church is less about what you do and more about why you do it. Maybe uh, they had taken the revolution of the day and failed to recognize any differences between men and women. See, this is crucial for us because uh, Paul doesn't give us here a full theology of biological sex and gender here. Uh, Paul is only correcting their particular thinking problem. After all, Paul was the one who said... Remember, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. It's quite possible they'd heard Paul say something like that and then taking it too far, applied it incorrectly. See, Paul, along with the whole of Scripture, affirms 
that men and women are of equal value, worth, and dignity, and yet at the same time are different, having complementary roles. But because of their particular misunderstanding and their particular need for correction, well, Paul majors here on their different roles. Um, although when it comes to application, the equality of the sexes will be very evident. Uh, we're going to spend a lot of time in verse 3 because it's the key to everything that follows and is the heading for the rest of the whole section, in fact. So be patient. Uh, this hard work will pay off in time. So what's the principle? What do they need to understand exactly? Verse 3, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. We'll come back to that middle clause later. You may notice I read it slightly differently. There is a hierarchy of relationships here. That's plain. Although notice that the ordering isn't actually very natural. Um, it isn't a straight chain of command. Uh, references to Christ frame the statement in the middle about man and woman. Uh, that's because he wants to end with Christ and God um, just to make it plain that all relationships, every single one sits under that ultimate one. We are all reflecting that ultimate relationship of God and Jesus. Now, as Jonathan so helpfully showed us in the kids' talk, heads are in authority over bodies, just like the headmaster is head over the school. Uh, hence why Paul chose this concept. Uh, notice it's an ordering issue, not a priority or value or equality issue. See, that idea will become extremely plain in chapter 12. Now we need to pause uh, so we can be aware of an attack on this verse. Uh, recent liberal scholarship have attacked the definition of the word head. Uh, they have argued that the word head could mean um, origin or source, uh, like the head of a river, um, the source of a river. Uh, where does it come from? So verse three could be saying, the head or source of a woman is man, at Genesis 2. They're right. Women did come from man's rib. It's a true reality. And we can see why recent liberal scholarship has favored that reading. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. It deletes any ordering of biological sex within the church. It's, hard, it's not hard to imagine a liberal friend of ours maybe one day trying to correct us here in this text. So how should we respond to proposals by liberal scholarship and friends of ours? There's lots that could be said, but here's all you need to know. Defining head as source or origin is a very recent development in understanding of the word. Wayne Grudem, among other boffins, have done thousands, literally thousands of checks on the word in ancient Greek writing. Thank you, I didn't have to do that work. And he found, along with lots of other boffins, there are zero occasions when this head word meant source in the ancient writings. The word head just never, ever held that sort of meaning. 
when it was in reference to relationships. Uh, What is more, whenever Paul uses the word for head, metaphorically in the rest of the New Testament, as it is used in verse three, authority is always primary and essential to the logic. It is just what the word must mean. Now, you can investigate the cross-references on your handout later from Ephesians and Colossians. That's all you need to know. That's all you need to know to correct any people who are liberal who might challenge you on the meaning of this verse. Suffice to say, head cannot mean source, not here, but rather authority. The head, meaning the authority of every man, is Christ, and so on. Now, as we land there, I want to just come back uh, to our statement about men and women and how they relate biblically. Remember, men and women are of equal value, worth, and dignity, and yet at the same time are different, having complementary roles. Now, I don't know what the word authority does to you as I say it out loud, but it may well elicit strong emotions in you. Uh, Stay with me. Um, The feminist movement, from everything that I can see, has done lots and lots of good. Uh, They've righted many wrongs of our culture the last hundred years. Uh, Praise God for that. However, one fallacy stigmatizes their thinking. For two people to be equal, they must do the same thing. This just is not true. God the Father and God the Son are both equally God. Yet, the Son submitted to the Father's will in Gethsemane. Praise the Lord he did that. Otherwise, we would never be saved. Jesus is not inferior to God or less God. It's a wonderful and beautiful thing that Jesus submits. Uh, Take a football team. Um, Is the goalkeeper less valuable to the team than the striker? Of course not. Yet they do very different roles. What is more, as Paul roots this logic back to how God and Jesus relate, end of verse three, the head of Christ is God, We can't simply skip the theological working here as a kind of cultural hang-up from the first century. So head means authority, and that must still apply to us today. This kind of ordering is functionally beautiful, according to God, and it reflects Jesus' relationship to Jesus. So Jesus' relationship to God, forgive me. So... Head means authority. But who's in view in this middle clause of verse three? You notice how I read it slightly differently to Ed. Husband and wife or men and women? As you've kindly been told in your footnotes by the ESV, the Greek word for woman and wife are the same as our man and husband. It's like in English, if I say the word bark, what does the word bark mean? Some of you in the room will think tree, and others of you will think woof woof. There are hundreds of examples in language of this. It always happens. And the only way you can tell which is to be meant is from the context. 
always from context. So you can read about bark in a sentence about trees, and you'd be pretty sure he's not talking about dogs woofing. See here? The ESV, they've, they've been a little bit naughty, I think, and they've added a little word which could mislead us here, that the her, that's a possessive pronoun, that her isn't actually there in the Greek. And considering the immediate context of verse 3, which is talking about universally about man, humanity, the head of every man is Christ, well, we'd expect Paul to stay in the same category of man and woman and not switch suddenly to husband and wife. And of course, we must grant that later in the passage, there are applications to those who are married. However, much of the logic in the chapter is universal. Verses 7 to 9 are about humanity's creation, universally true. And verses 11 to 12 are about humanity relating to each other, also universally true. So why would verse 3 be restricted to just husband and wife? To me, is hard to square. Before we think through what it means, though, for man to be head of woman, we must spot what Paul isn't saying here. Uh, Paul doesn't say that all women are to submit to all men in all matters of life outside of the church and family. That, by the way, is probably, I think, why the ESV was, what was, the ESV was trying to avoid saying. Um, this is a pattern which the New Testament applies explicitly in just two different settings. The church which is the main focus in this chapter, and marriage, which is the focus in other books. Beyond those two examples of church and marriage, scripture doesn't explicitly apply. So I'm inclined to restrict application to just within church and marriage. More on that later. But it does make perfect sense when you think about it. Church and the family are the only two groups and the only two glimpses in this life of Eden and the new creation, and therefore our new creation order. See, quite simply, within church and the church body, the only thing that women can't have is authority over men. That's the only thing women can't have. What that means explicitly I think is actually quite tricky to work out and be precise about. That's because authority is a concept. Um, it's not tied to a specific action. Uh, when, I, when do I have authority or not is actually quite subjective and hard to square or be precise about. But positively, please notice this, positively, what can every woman do in the church? Pray, speak, participate, be equally valued, be heard, and generally help the body function in every single way. The only limitation is upon the woman having authority over man within the gathered community, as well as over their husbands, if they do have one. That's all they can't do, just that. There we go, there's the principle, I think, in verse three, clear, I hope. Now, all too briefly, let's dive into the reasoning behind the church's relational headship. 
Uh, we're going to go very quickly, so strap in. Why should we be concerned with headship relationships? Reason one, shame and honor, verses four to six. Uh, Paul's logic here is brilliant. Uh, remember, they're not getting the practice wrong, um, but he plays now here logical fallacy by getting them to imagine scenarios with him. Uh, verse four is about a man dressing like a woman when he prays. It's a deliberate and probably pride-driven act uh, that would deny his responsibilities as a man. Uh, that dishonors his physical head, as well as Christ, his relational head. Shame on that man. Verse five is about a wife doing the exact opposite. It may well have been because she enjoyed her new freedom in the gospel, but took it far too far. She would bring shame on her literal head, as well as her relational head. Here, her husband. Shame on that woman. In fact, verse 6, she may as well have dressed like an adulteress, a, a prostitute. For in those days, women who cheated had their heads shaved to shame them. Do you see already why we can't apply these specific cultural elements in the same way? It just doesn't mean that anymore, does it? Uh, why, though? Why, though, should we be concerned with headship relationships? Reason two, let's keep going, creation. Verses seven to nine. We need to be careful in verse seven because Paul is clearly not saying that woman is not made in the image of God. Of course not. Paul knew Genesis very well indeed. He's not superseding that in any way here. He's referring to it actually very often in other books and letters. See, Paul drops the language of image in the clause about women and only talks about women being the glory of man. And he only explains that in the next verse, verse eight. Women were made for and from men. Women are given equal worth, but having come from man, as, they, as well as being made to help man in his original responsibilities, they enjoy their unique role. This is just how God made us. It's an eternal logic for us to face up to. Why should we be concerned with headship relationships? Reason three, procreation. Verses 11 and 12. Before the men get above their stations, in verses 11 and 12, Paul balances the scales. Neither male nor female are independent of each other. Both are made in the image of God. Both also need each other. That's how he designed it. Men and women have a common origin. End of verse 12. God himself. And both receive each other as a gift to equally work out their purposes before him. It's beautiful. It's mutually dependent. Why should we be concerned with headship relationships? Reason four. Angels. Verse 10. Verse 10 is obviously hard to be sure about. Although again, sadly, I, I need to start by correcting, I think, the ESV for misleading us slightly. Paul doesn't write explicitly about a symbol here. It's just not there in the, in the Greek. But just her own authority. The ESV have inferred it to be a symbol. But literally it reads, that is why the woman ought to have authority over her head. 
because of the angels. See here, it seems that the symbol is a sign of her own authority. It's her own authority that she has. It's not a symbol. Not just as a sign that she's being submissive, but also of her freedom as a woman to play an important role in the congregation. This is a wonderful moment of freedom for the woman. So as she does this, submitting herself to man, while the watching angels who are witnessing her participation, I presume are impressed, much like in Ephesians 3 verse 10. Go look at that later. I wonder if we think of that as we act within God's good design of headship within the body. We are all getting a round of applause, if you like, and approval from the angels. Why should we be concerned with headship relationships? Reason five, nature. Verses 14 and 15, nature. Final reason before we move to applying. You can take your seatbelts off soon. Verse 14, verse 14, what is Paul basically saying? Men just have short hair and women have longer hair? Deal with that. That's how it's done in Corinth, so don't try and be the fashion trendsetters. Is that what he's saying? Thing is, naturally, men's hair grows just as long as women's hair, doesn't it? If you don't believe me, I'll show you a picture of me when I was 20. <laughs> it was down my back. No, Paul is saying something slightly different. He's saying deep, deep down, naturally, there is an innate God-given sense in us all that men and women are different and will probably look different too. It's just part of natural law. Just like we all naturally know that adults look after children. That's just the best way of the world working. So too, men and women are different. Okay, take your seatbelts off, time to slow down and a time for a little application. When it comes to applying this, we need to take some care. Uh, the theological principle of verse three and on going is unchanging and immovable. God's ordering and its implications for how we should function in this room, that never changes, never changes. The theological realities are just as true for the Corinthians as they are for us. But wearing head coverings, they just don't mean the same then as they do now. They are a culturally situated thing. Fashion always reflects the culture it's in and the understanding that comes with it. In fact, if anything, veils or head coverings or whatever it was nowadays, well, they mean completely different things to back then. So if we were to wear them, we'd communicate very different things. I think of our Muslim friends, uh, which is the most common head coverings of today. Ask yourselves, what are, the most, what are they trying to communicate with their head coverings? I spoke to um, a few people who know these things better than I do. I was told they guard women's modesty from the age of puberty so that men aren't led into temptation when they look at them. It's patriarchal, it's unequal, it's subservient. Certainly not a reminder of authority within a relationship of equal worth and dignity. 
Now, don't get me wrong. Please don't get me wrong here. If your conscience demands that you wear a head covering, please wear one next week. Please do. But we must realize that within our culture, we're going to be communicating quite a different thing than verse 3. We are in a culture that is undeniably trying to dissolve our understanding of binary biological sexes and how they relate to each other. And so fashion is going to reflect that, isn't it? Isn't that pretty obvious? So today, finding an item of clothing which communicates that men and women are equal in value but different in role is, in my view, impossible. It just doesn't exist. One will often hear that um, options for how one could apply this. I've heard this um, these last few weeks as I've been preparing. I often hear that people want to apply this by saying wedding rings uh, or wives adopting husbands' names or maybe even pronouns are ways of expressing this sort of headship within relationships. However, as our culture is changing so much, arguably even these are losing their significance nowadays. Certainly, both husbands and wives wear equal wedding rings and they say identical vows more often than not, certainly um, outside of our Christian circles. And many cultures adopt both surnames on the continent especially. So where does that leave us? Where does it leave us? No symbolic equivalent? Well, I'd like to suggest that fixating on these symbolic applications are slightly missing the point. Why? Because none of them are expressions of what happens within the church, within our body. So they function very differently to head coverings back then. 1 Corinthians 11 seems to be saying, women, cover your head when praying and prophesying. I take it that happens in the gathered community. So if we try to reduce this significance of this passage to just a symbol, I'll wear my wedding ring, uh, so I'm in obedience to this chapter, and I miss the substance, do you know, I think Paul would be absolutely horrified. The issue wasn't the abuse of a symbol. The problem was potential to discredit God's good design. So we need to reflect upon our thinking and our practices within our church I think the most important thing is that we have mutual interdependence within the body. Jonathan said this, men need women, women need men. God created both in the image of God. He made us so that we could help each other, the men to be the head and authority over, and the women to be helping, complementing, enjoying their unique role, which we are both given from God, both of equal value. So let's reflect on our little church family. Do we, as men and women, designed by God to function in a particular order, bring honor or shame upon our relational heads? Do the men here within our body step up in love and lead or do our men here follow the footsteps of our, Adam's, uh, our father Adam's abdication and, like most men in the world, shrink from their responsibility 
of lovingly building up each other? Do our women here need to resist the temptation to take the reins, perhaps by encouraging our men and having to have authority and to allow them the space to do that? I think it is crucial for us men to take the lead, to take ownership, to lead in love as God leads us. Too often, men either remain mute and passive or take or charge off without benefiting from the many gifts of women. But I want to pause here and say, I am so thankful for you guys as a church family here. On the whole, I think we hear this pattern and we enact it, I think, with great joy and love for the opposite sex. Time and time again, I think we get this just about right. But there's lots to keep on reflecting on and keeping getting this right. So much is at stake as we do this. Remember, the angels are watching. See, God is building a body. He's building a church. He's building you. And how we behave in it, it really, really matters. The angels are watching, and everything we do reflects God's desire. In our society, this will always feel really hard to swallow. But we must trust that the Lord's ordering is far, far better than anything that we would come up with on our own. If it's good enough for Jesus and God to relate this way, then it must be good enough for us. Let's pray as we close. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Father, teach us what that means more and more. Help us reflect that within our church family and within our families at home. And help us be a picture of that new creation body that you are building us into. Help us be the light of the world now as we live out your creational purposes today. We pray for your glory. Amen.